welcome to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. I'm your host, the Amateur Gourmet, Adam Roberts. Our theme this week is one of my favorite subjects. It is spring cooking. That's because right now, if you go to a farmer's market, you're going to see, well, if you live in, on the West Coast, I don't know about the East Coast yet, but eventually you're going to see asparagus, you're going to see fava beans, you're going to see garlic scapes, you're going to see rhubarb, and you're going to see my personal favorite, sugar snap peas. But what to do with all of that? Well, that's what today's episode is all about. Um, Our main guest today is Ali Slagle, the author of the brand new cookbook, I Dream of Dinner So You Don't Have To. And I ask her all kinds of questions about spring cookery, as well as questions about her career and how she got to write this cookbook and how she writes for the New York Times. But first, I've invited one of my best friends on, Ben Mims. He's also one of the best cooks that I know. He's a cooking columnist for the LA Times, and he agreed to answer all of my questions about spring cookery. So here's my quick convo with Ben Mims. Well, hello, Ben Mims. Thank you for doing my podcast so early in the morning. Of course, Adam. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Well, it's funny. So I decided to do a themed podcast lately. And uh, this theme is spring cooking. And I felt like you were the perfect person to talk to because you're the most seasonal cook I know. That's a um, that's a very um, high compliment. I'll order to fill. So but I will take that. I'll take that on my mantle. Yeah. I mean, you do things that I've never even heard of. Like there, there will be like flowers blooming in the spring, and you'll like pickle them or something. Uh-huh. Make syrup with them or something like that. Absolutely, I love. I, mean, I love um, floral things. Anything that's kind of like new and fresh and green, and kind of like harnessing those flavors. So I think yeah, spring is wonderful because everything is just kind of like the smells are in the air. Everything's like new again, and it's like you know, even though we don't really have winter here, we you know citrus is like big in the wintertime. There's lots that the Spring is still like, wow, it's like a whole new like refresh. Yeah, I, I was actually thinking that spring is my favorite season to cook because there's something very like hopeful about mm-hmm. com- coming out of the winter, even here in L.A. where it's not that bad. But yeah. like suddenly, <laughs> like especially in New York, like when when I lived in New York and it was like freezing cold and then suddenly you saw asparagus and suddenly uh-huh. you saw peas. It was exciting. <laughs> but wait, what was the flowers like specifically? Like what was the flower thing that you recently did? Oh, it was uh, jasmine. Uh, so I picked jasmine buds or petals and made just like a syrup with them because um, I've always wanted to do just like kind of, you know, making a flower water is a little um, intensive and you have to have this like crazy setup, but putting it in syrup obviously is very easy. And so I always wanted to like, you know, take these like super aromatic flowers and just make a simple syrup with them so I can either put in a cocktail or like drizzle it over a cake or over ice cream or just like to have it like, make like seltzer with it, you know, whatever, just kind of like mm-hmm. have that aroma but to drink it in like a better form. So it's a jasmine, wow. jasmine syrup. Yeah. Can you do that with any flowers? I think as long as it is a, you know, edible flower and it has like a really strong aroma, I don't see why not. I've, I, I remember I tried when I lived in New York, there were um, black locust buds um, that were kind of like jasmine. They're really beautiful white buds. Everything is poisonous on the tree except for the petals. So I would like, tediously pick each one off oh and made a sack. it was delicious <laughs> i think you can do it with orange blossoms as well of course anything oh what are the purple ones the hanging clusters yeah i was just thinking about that that's that's my favorite Wisteria? in the spring that, yeah and um those kind of smell like yeah. vanilla or something it's like what's the one at the farmer's market though that always comes in the spring it's like big purple like is it lilies not lilies um uh, yeah all right or Jack- i don't know if jacarandas have any aroma that they grow a lot here anyway yes okay yeah so people for people who aren't crazy flower people (laughs) who are looking forward to cooking in the spring i mean what are what's your advice for just the basics like asparagus sugar snap peas rhubarb like what what are the things you think are the best ways to cook that stuff well so see i was going to say that you know how usually people are like oh in the summertime i don't cook at all because i just like eat everything kind of like raw to that's like the height for me that's spring where i don't really want to, you know, sugar snap peas, the asparagus, like the young zucchini, all these, and um, all these kind of like new green things. I don't want to like damage them with heat that much. So I often will just um, use those things, maybe lightly blanch them just to kind of take that raw edge off, chill them. I you make a lot of like salads and stuff like that. Cause I don't mm-hmm. really love lettuce that much. And so I would the salad oh. I make, I want to kind of like cut up sugar snap peas, ton of like blanched asparagus other green things I can't really think of right now, but it just like a lemon vinaigrette. And I'll just eat that uh-huh. in a bowl, on toast, or whatever. Um, kind of like slice up some green garlic or some spring onions as well. 
everything just kind of raw. I want like really crunchy, sort of like raw green things. Oh yeah. Well, I've I've discovered with sugar snap peas and asparagus in a salad, how you slice them actually affects how they taste. Mm-hmm. Like when I le- when I learned to cut them on an extreme bias, mm-hmm. like like asparagus and and then the sugar snap peas, so they kind of look the same. They look kind of shredded. Mm-hmm. And then if you just toss that with olive oil and like little lemon juice and salt and maybe some parmesan, that's so yeah. good. Oh, the parmesan is always good too, especially like if you roast little cheese on the ends. I love it. It's so good. When Now, when you talk about green garlic, I think that's something that maybe a lot of people don't know about mm-hmm. that I only learned because I read like the Chez Panisse cookbooks. Yep. And it's I only really encountered it in California. I don't know if you saw it in New York, but can you explain what green garlic is? Yeah. So, uh, you know, whatever, you know, garlic or I mean, spring onions is kind of like a, a summer thing, ramps or summer thing. Whenever these like new young bulbs are starting to sprout, they'll send up those green shoots. I think we've all seen it, you know, whenever um, you know, your garlic goes a little too long in the pantry and those little yeah. green things start to pop out. That's what that is. If you let it go at all, it's basically like a, like a chive. It's just like a young green kind of oniony or allium scented thing. And it's just like what they're going to shoot up to then become, you know, the stems and the flowers and everything. So you're just letting it go to shoot and you can treat them just like chives or anything that you would put like scallion greens in. You can use, you know, green garlic or spring onions or any of those kind of like young green shoots to kind of just give like a raw, but like less um, assertive, like kind of onion allium flavor. Wait, I'm very confused because when I go to the farmer's market and it says green garlic, they're bul- I buy the bulbs. Oh, you buy the full bulbs? I mean, the garlic at the bottom is like yeah. garlic, garlic, and you can eat that too. But oftentimes yeah. just the green part that's like above it is... The green garlic, but you can also use the like, actual uh, garlic cloves. The That's bottom. so funny because up until this conversation, I sliced off the green part, threw it away, <gasps> and I o- I only used the bowl. <laughs> no, you gotta use the green shoot. That's what the that's what it is. Yeah. I had no idea. I really <laughs> genuinely thought it was the new garlic because Alice Waters has a recipe where you where you roast that bowl mm. in olive oil and you serve it with goat cheese. So up Ooh. until this moment, I thought that was the green garlic. Wow, I'm learning a lot. I mean, yes, you can use that and cook that, but I had the, the green shoot, like kind of like garlic scapes, that whole thing, like any of that like green toss up, use that for sure. That's like um that's the best part for me, I think. But yeah, that sounds wonderful. Now, what about, um, like, I, I feel like you'll have a lot to say about this, um, rhubarb and mm, strawberries. Yeah. What do you do with those? You know, I, so I'll, I'll answer it in a two-part. For the rhubarb, even though rhubarb and strawberry together is a classic combination, I know why, you know, it exists. I love just how sour rhubarb is on its own. So often if I make a jam or something, it's just that on its own because, you know, I'll add the new normal sugar, but it stays pretty tart. I really like roasting it. And like you said, kind of with the asparagus, cutting it in kind of short pieces so all those fibers, they don't get too long and stringy, you know, but just roasting it and keeping it on hand to um, honestly season with like black pepper or like coriander or use some kind of savory herbs sometimes. Mm-hmm. It serves a good purpose in place of like a lingonberry jam or a chutney if like you want something kind of sweet and jammy for like savory food. Um, so it's mm-hmm. good on a sandwich, like a turkey sandwich with Wow. Like roasted rhubarb is really good. Um, or just like using it uh, on the side of like a taco or a meat pie or something like that. So I like to do less obvious iterations with rhubarb and kind of lead into the uh, sourness in a savory way. So when you when you roast it, so do you just like literally slice it and then toss it with olive oil? Or like what do you... I mean, you can use vegetable oil if you want to like keep it yeah. not olive oil, salt, pepper, and just like like you would anything else. But maybe... A little bit higher heat because it's kind of collapsed pretty quick and just a little bit caramelized around the edges. And then just by the time you scrape it off the sheet into a bowl and kind of mash it up, it's, um, and, it's like a mush. And no sugar? No. I mean, you could if you want to. No honey? Like, like, that, that sounds very tart. It is tart. But that's, what, that's what I'm saying, like using it like a, um, a savory condiment for a thing. I wouldn't just eat wow. a spoonful of it. But I would spread it on some like a sandwich yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Huh, I've never heard of that. I'm learning a yeah. lot, and it's t- 15 minutes. Wow. I, maybe I should have kept you for longer. Uh, wait, so and what, what's the strawberry preparation that you like to do? Well, in strawberries, I would say it's funny. What I love about cooking so seasonally is that each year, you know, I'll find something for like for each season. That I, might, I want to focus on that, and I'll just like not do anything else. But then, you know, three years later, you know, that thing will come back around. So strawberries is that for me where for years, I'm always like, oh, strawberries, strawberries. I don't really care. I've had them. And then for some reason <laughs> this spring, I, I saw them and I was like, you know what? For me, 
I remember growing up in the South, strawberries was the like harbinger of spring. They can, they were ready in March. And that's what like kind of, for me, meant spring is here. So I've kind of reinvigorated uh, my love of strawberries and have been buying them all the time and not cooking them, just eating them raw, just because I mean, I've, I've made like a cobbler with it. I made some jam, of course, and kind of cooked it down with some like classic stuff. But I like just, you know, that's my thing to have when I'm walking by the kitchen, just snack on. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have to say, as cliche as this is, last spring, I made a strawberry rhubarb pie and I'd never made one before. Yep. And I had some of our mutual friends over. I guess I didn't invite you because we were having a huge fight we're at the fighting, time. I'm just beefing, yes. <laughs> no, but I made a strawberry rhubarb pie and it blew everybody's minds. Like mm. they went crazy for it. Yep. And I think it was because of that combination. First of all, I think it tastes super springy. Springy. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just like that combination of strawberries and rhubarb really does taste like what it feels like to yep. be outside. Like it has that floral quality mm -hmm. and that brightness. But I also think um, there's just something so satisfying about like cutting into a strawberry rhubarb pie and just seeing the red and the, and yeah. the chunks of strawberry. But you're not, you, you don't like to, to uh, cross church and state with those two, it sounds like. Well, no, it's not, it's not like, but it's, it's one of those things where when you have them separate from each other you really get to more to the, their individual um aromas and they're like kind of you can find kind of new ways to appreciate them and use them i love like a pie like that that sounds delicious but it's it's nice whenever you um because i was making i was making strawberries in a cobbler the other day this is kind of similar uh where the recipe called for just adding water to like the sugar and mm -hmm. vanilla instead of like lemon juice Lemon juice is always, you always put it with that to kind of cut the sweetness. But this is just water. So when the strawberries baked up, they tasted more like on the wine, winey flavor of strawberry. Oh, okay. So like the tart, fruity, bright thing. And it was different. Like it was just like, it was nice to have something that's strawberry that's not like tart and bright for once and kind of have this more like deep wine flavor. Um, neither one is good or bad. It's just like different. So I feel like with strawberry and rhubarb together, that's such a common like people, everyone knows that flavor and it's so good. It's so beloved. And when you all of a sudden you kind of try it one without the other, you're like, oh yeah, that's what that is. And you can kind of like right. get back to it. Yeah. I love that pie. It's classic. Yeah. But, but also for you, like in your profession as someone who has to develop new recipes, mm -hmm. it's like you're constantly searching for like, what's the new, what's yeah. exciting, like what hasn't been done. So I get yeah. that. But what now, what vegetables and fruits haven't we covered yet in terms of spring mm. cooking? I mean, we didn't talk about peas, like spring peas. Love peas. Although for me, it's like sugar snaps and snow peas are better because the actual like fresh peas I love, but you know, I cook with them all year round. Like, sorry, the frozen kind all the time. So yeah. like, they kind of lose their specialness. Although, and also I hate chucking peas. So it's like, it takes a lot for me to like do that. But actually right now, the thing I'm obsessed with in spring is different types of radishes. Oh. Because like I've been having to go to the market every week for this like side radio um, gig that I'm doing. And so talking with farmers and chefs about kind of stuff they're into and one recently was about radishes but like the, the kind of daikon uh family of them so they're all super crunchy super sweet and um like really dense and so it's been nice to like have those around slice them up i've never been a eat veggies as a snack person but a good like a thinly sliced radish chip and using its place of like dip or whatever is really good it's just like it's like a cucumber upgrade it's really nice and crunchy and water. And I kind of love it. So radishes for me are kind of like the current obsessions. Yeah. Radishes are also beautiful. I mean, yeah. as silly as that sounds, it's like when you're making a, like a, a plate or like an aioli platter, which mm -hmm. I've had you, you've made that for me before. Yeah. It's just beautiful to put them on, on a plate. Even if you're doing like a cheese plate or something, you could just yep. put radishes on there. Yep. Um, what about garlic scapes? Do you ever mm. use those? I have in the past, not in probably the last couple of years, I will say. Yeah. I feel like they're similar to like I say, green garlic, chives, scallions, spring onions, like whenever you want that kind of flavor. You know, I feel like garlic scapes are a little, um, a little more assertive than green garlic mm -hmm. is. So I would actually maybe cook with those, like chop them up, okay. cook, uh, maybe, you know, cook them for like 30 seconds to a minute in olive oil, salt, pepper, and then put my eggs in, like scrambled eggs or something like that. Yeah. Or um, cook them, mix them into like sour cream or goat cheese for a dip or something like that. So like, Maybe where I would use a, a really assertive, like kind of caramelized onion to just kind of 
round those will bit and use that so like a, it goes by quicker but has the same kind of punch to it. Well, as a final question, um, we kind of glossed over asparagus, but I do kind of feel like asparagus is the ingredient mm. that most people listening to this will encounter yep. uh, now that it's spring. And so besides eating it raw or slicing it into a salad or boiling it, if you were going to, if you were forced to make an asparagus tasting menu mm. where you had to make a couple of dishes with asparagus, what would be some of the things that come to mind? I mean, you know, well, this is not really fair because not, I mean, no, you can find it at grocery stores now, but honestly, I've never really played around with white asparagus that much. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I would try that. Like try to find like the fattest ones I can find and maybe like do that, that very classic thing where you have a whole bundle and you tie it with a uh, kitchen twine on each end and kind of lower it into the boiling water till they're perfectly blanched, take it out and then do some kind of, um, some kind of like butter sauce, maybe on it, not a hollandaise that's too expected. But um, <laughs> or maybe some kind of like, maybe like a garlic skate aioli or something like that. Something that using other parts of spring and then make like a little mayonnaise yeah. out of it and dip it. Yeah, I would use it kind of like fries. I would maybe you know keep it blanched like that or roast it or just do some of that. And just make a lots of fun like green springy dips to like dip asparagus into the green stuff. Too. What about um? What about soup? I'm not a big soup head, as they say, but. One of the things I always remember from culinary school is you always save your asparagus trimmings, boil the hell out of them, and that's how you make your asparagus soup in the spring. So I think that would be yeah. delicious. I love, I do make a, like a watercress soup. You know, you can make right mm-hmm. now too with watercress in spring. Just lightly blanched, throw it in a blender with some uh, hot vegetable stock and like a little cream, and that's it. So I think asparagus um, soup done the same way. Just blend it with those two things, salt and pepper, maybe some like cherry vinegar and olive oil on top. Be delicious. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I recommend for people listening? Because Ben's so not helpful in any of this. Is <laughs> uh, <laughs> just kidding. Is a spring risotto. That's mm. one of my favorite things oh, to yes. make. And one of the cool things you can do with a spring risotto, similar to the way Ben was just saying that you can put the stems in the soup. You can make a take a stock pot, fill it with water, and drop in a bunch of just like you know green garlic mm. or drop in um, the trimmings from leeks and stuff, and make a quick like vegetable stock with mm. whatever you have. And then you toast and you know you cook an onion in a like a large skillet you add the arborio rice and toast that add some white wine and then you start ladling in that stock but then the fun part is you could add sugar snap peas that are sliced you could add asparagus that's sliced you yeah. could add peas you could add and maybe even radishes i don't know yeah why not yeah but you can make a, like a beautiful spring risotto that has all that spring flavor in it so i think in terms of the contest between me and ben i think i kind of won well i will <laughs> say that i mean i i didn't think about that but a spring like pea and asparagus risotto my god that's classic and that would be yeah the best the best vehicle for it because you have this like hot warm filling rice and then you have this like burst of like bright green yeah. yes that sounds incredible well, you know, your stuff sounded really good too. I hope I hope you weren't. No, you, no, you. Also, you know what? Just to end it, I, I was just at a restaurant, um, oh, Antico Nuovo, which you really liked oh, love. too, right? Yeah, I love. And I didn't order it, but on the menu they had a ravioli with pea puree inside mm. of it with mint. Oh yeah. And I bet that would be really fun to make. It's like a ravioli with with pureed peas oh, yeah. and mint inside of it. So maybe I'll do that sometime. Absolutely. And another spring thing is just like buying all the herbs and just pouring them on everything. Just to have that like bright green oh, yeah. flavor, everything. Even on your cereal in the morning. It's great. <laughs> well then thank you so much. Do you want to plug what you're doing? What what was the radio thing that you're doing? Uh, right now, I'm filling in for uh, Jillian Ferguson at the KCRW Market Report. So you can hear that okay. every um, Saturday uh, on KCRW. I'll be doing that from, you know, beginning of April to the end of June. Um, and then also my regular writings at LA Times newspaper. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, Ben. I'll see you on Wednesday. You're making me dinner. Yes, I am. Thanks, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll talk to Bye. you soon. <laughs> Bye. He really is making me dinner on Wednesday. Uh, that's not a joke. All right. Well, if you are waiting to hear Ali Slagle, wait no more. Here is my talk with Ali Slagle. Well, Ali, welcome to my podcast. I am a fan of yours. I've been cooking your recipes for a long time, so it's really nice to meet you. Thank you so much, Adam. I don't want to age you, but I think I've been reading Amateur Gourmet since I was in college. Are <laughs> they going to be like, since I was born? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> okay, that's cool. Thank you for reading me. Um, I was just looking through your gorgeous, gorgeous new cookbook, I Dream of Dinner, and it's so like 
it feels so of the moment. Like it really feels like the kind of food people want to eat right now. And I'm not just saying that because you agreed to do my podcast. Like <laughs> I, I've like already like bookmarked like 30 recipes oh. I want to make. So yes, congratulations. Thank you. That makes me feel so good because, um, you know, I wrote this two years ago and in the middle oh. of a pandemic when, you know, we don't know, we didn't know what food was going to be like two years from now. So uh-huh. I'm glad that it still feels useful and relevant. Well, it's so interesting how you designed this book to or like structured it because unlike a typical cookbook, it doesn't have a list of ingredients um, in the traditional way. It's not like half a cup of this or a cup of that. It's more just like hazelnuts and, you know, olive oil. And then in the recipe itself, you, you explain, you know, you chop it. But can you, talk, can you talk a little bit about that decision? Yeah. So I think there's a few reasons why I did this. One is when I was first cooking, when I was a kid, no one told me that I was supposed to do all of the prep that is mentioned in the ingredients list first. Mm -hmm. So as I was working through a recipe, if it said half a cup of chopped kale, I would like stop and chop the kale. And I think I did that because that's how I saw my mom cook. You know, she Uh wasn't like chopping all these things and putting them in bowls and then moving them to the stove. She was just chopping everything as she went. And it seemed so efficient. And so I wanted to think about how I could restructure the recipe to kind of train people to work through a recipe in that way that's really smart because it is it is part of the process the prep is there a cat in front of there's you? there's gonna be a cat happening <laughs> i can't move her otherwise she will get upset so uh, she's okay. just gonna I, participate <laughs> i was a little startled to see an animal Sorry, on camera yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, where are you by the way do you live in new york or do you live in california i don't know where you live yeah i don't really live anywhere um we've, okay. been, tra- <laughs> we've been traveling for the last six months Before that, I lived in Brooklyn for six years. Okay. But I'm currently out on Long Island at my mom's house. Oh, where in Long Island are you from? Because I'm from Long Island too. Well, I'm actually from Los Angeles. Oh, Um, how weird. Okay. (laughs) So we switched places. We switched. I'm not in Amiensit, all the way at the end. I'm from Oceanside, which is on the south shore of Long Island, um, which is famous for its dump. There's a gigantic garbage dump in the middle of town, and you can smell it from wherever you are. Um, so tell me about being on the road for all this. I mean, I have so many questions to ask you. I mean, this is just going to be a very naturally flowing conversation. And eventually, we're going to talk a little bit about spring cooking, because that's our theme this week. Um, but what, what was this road trip all about? I saw it on yeah. your website, too. Yeah, so we, um, I think we just were like itching to move our location. Who's we? And, oh, my boyfriend and I and okay. the cat. Yeah. <laughs> well, you took the cat on a road trip. We did take the cat on a road trip. Oh my god! So we had we had driven across the country before in our car, but then this time we really had to bring the cat because we were going for a longer time. So we decided to like get a van, and my boyfriend Ryan built out the van for a bed and a little micro kitchen. But really, I think we were just like ready to see the war, see the country after like being kind of like isolated for so long. Um, And I kind of selfishly was also like desperate for new food inspiration. Like I felt like I had no more ideas after not going to restaurants for so long and not, you know, eating at people's houses for so long. So I just needed to like get out there and get kind of like a new well of inspiration. So we drove to the West Coast and we were on the West Coast for six months and then we drove back because I have to do some work here. It's so funny because I've been fan. I, this is like a fantasy of mine because Craig, my partner, is making a movie right now in um, Concord, Massachusetts. And we talked about me bringing our dog, Winston, to Concord for the shoot so he would have some like coziness and comfort. But flying with Winston's a nightmare because he hates being in a crate. So I kept fantasizing about, well, what if I get in my car with Winston and just Winston and I drive from California to Massachusetts? And then I loaded up Google Maps. And similar to you, of course, I was guided by my gut. And I was like, <laughs> well, where where could I go? Like, I, I my first stop was going to be Tucson because I know that they have, there's amazing food in Tucson. But then from there, I was like, Denver? Like, I, I got lost, so it never happened. But what, what route did you take and what were the highlights? Yeah, so we went north because we really wanted to get to Glacier National Park um, by the end of September before it got too cold. So we, Ryan's family is from St. Louis, so we stopped in St. Louis and then went through Wyoming, North Dakota, Montana, and then went south. There are definitely, and we've also done the south before. Okay. There are definitely like days when you're just driving 
and eating because you are hungry. Right. But I think too, in that you find like funny things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. What's your cat's name, by the way? This is August. (laughs) August. So how did August do on this journey? So that was the big million dollar question because she's very particular and a total princess. And she was fine. I think she just, she hid in her litter box the entire time. She never (laughs) saw any beautiful national park ever. (laughs) Okay. Um, But she was okay. She didn't, you know, run outside of the van. She only cried some nights. It was okay. Wow. Um, Well, let's get to the subject at hand. And then I'm going to circle back and ask you a little bit about your career. But I'm curious, like it's springtime here for sure on the West Coast. I see asparagus. I see sugar snap peas. I see rhubarb. I've already made an upside down rhubarb cake. My gosh, you're showing off. (laughs) (laughs) But you're on the East Coast. So is is there spring produce yet? No. It's um extremely cold. We're we have kind of like a cold slap right now, so it does not feel like spring. However, I was in Palm Springs last month and uh, you're all the, over the place. Yeah, I am all over the place. <laughs> and um there were fava beans at the farmers market already in February. So that was extremely exciting. So I had a little taste. Yeah, California is weird. It kind of spoils you. Like it doesn't feel the same way it does in New York where you've gone through the slog of the cold winter and going to the farmer's market and just seeing like garlic and, you know, I don't even know what they used to have, uh, apples. And then eventually, I guess the first thing I would always see at the Union Square Farmer's Market was ramps. That was like the thing, like ramps are here, ramps. Um, and then and then asparagus and all that. But so I'm curious, like what do you look forward to cooking in the spring the most and what are some of the recipes you like to make? Yeah. I mean, fava beans are my ramp. Um, That to me is like when I get really excited about spring. That sounds like a bumper sticker. Yeah. (laughs) Ramps to me. I mean, I'm sure you have like great ways to use ramps. Ramps are kind of like scallions to me. Like they kind of do the same thing in my mind. We don't get them here. We get green garlic here, but I've never seen a ramp in LA. Yeah. So fava beans, I mean, I think they get a a bad rap because you have to peel them twice they have mm-hmm. like their long pot and then they have these like little wetsuits um but <laughs> i i love to just grill them grill the whole pod there's a couple people that have written about it heidi swanson and ignacio matos but basically the the bean steams in the pod and cooks and so it's much easier just to like pop it out after it's been grilled and you kind of eat it like edamame oh i see so you grill the pot like the giant like pod mm-hmm. part then the the bean, you pull out the bean, but then you pinch it to get out the inner bean? Yeah, so I like to kind of like grill the whole pod so it gets charred and then they actually like bloom up because of the steam inside. That's how you know they're ready. And then I toss them in like lemon, garlic, anchovy, chili flakes. And then you kind of like strip the coating with your mouth and pluck out the pods. Oh, so I see it. And you eat the wetsuit part just because at that point it's pretty tender. And what do you do if you don't have a grill? Can you do it like in a cast iron skillet or a broiler? That's a good idea. I think you could broil it. Cast iron, I think it's a surface area issue because they're so big. But I think you could broil it. Wow, that's a good tip because I see favas at the farmer's market and I'm always like, oh God, do I want to go through this where, where you pull them all out of the pods and then you have to, I usually boil them in salted water and then pull them out. And then by the end, I have like a, like a tablespoon <laughs> or like a quarter cup of like fava beans to eat. Yeah. Adelangi also has a cool recipe where you just, you peel them all from the long pod, but then you keep the wetsuits on half of them. So it mm-hmm. feels like slightly less work, but it's like with some sort of meatball. I can't remember what meat it is, but that one's a really good recipe too. So what, what other spring ingredients do you like to cook with? I think asparagus is probably like the one spring ingredient that like I truly introduce into my house for the whole Mm. season, just because it's more readily available at grocery stores and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I love, I mean, I truly, I think I love eating them all the ways, like from raw to grilled Mm -hmm. to broiled to everything roasted. I'm a little like wasteful with my asparagus because I I don't bother with the whole like snapping it or peeling it. I just break off the bottom. I just kind of like slice off like the bottom third and then just use the tops. Isn't that terrible? (laughs) I mean, whatever works for you. If you want to, you could probably save the bottoms for stock or something like that. But also 
you're probably buying really fresh asparagus so you don't have that much waste. And so your your style of cooking, I mean, looking at the book, I mean, even when you were talking about getting like asparagus from the grocery store and here I am talking about like farmer's markets, but it feels like there's like a nice balance in your book and with your cooking between like aspirational like fresh ingredients but also like realistic like there's Fritos there's uh, (laughs) there's all kinds of stuff in your book where it's like oh you just grab that from the bodega on the corner so how did that style emerge for you yeah well I grew up in Los Angeles where you know we have fresh things all year round Mm -hmm. and then I went to school in Berkeley where truly it was just like produce heaven and I got really spoiled with you know, the, the grocery store was Berkeley Bowl, which just has like incredible wholesale seasonal ingredients. And, you know, they don't just have like five kinds of apples. They have like 25 kinds of apples. And I thought that's like how everyone lived. You know, I just didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then I moved to New York and was in for a rude awakening when <laughs> I realized that some grocery stores, you are not aware of the seasons. Like everything is the same all year round, which is kind mm-hmm. of a weird experience. Or everything is like hyper seasonal and there are many months when you don't have fresh, fresh things, when you just Mm -hmm. have like potatoes and kale. So for my work, because I'm like reaching people from all over the country, I kind of want to think about like what the default is that everyone can can shop for. So that was also part of the reason that we took this trip was like, I didn't know what grocery stores were like in the middle of the country or, Mm -hmm. you know, in a town when there was only one grocery store. You know, I spent like a (laughs) month in those places now, but so I feel like I have a better idea of what people are really shopping with. I think your cat wants to be interviewed on this podcast. It's really, it's like, she won't talk unless she won't, unless it's a really inconvenient time. August. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, What did you discover at these grocery stores in the middle of the country that you were surprised to find? We stayed in one town that only had a Safeway. That was the only grocery store. And I think I was surprised at how much selection there really was. Like Mm -hmm. there was less selection at your bodega, you know, like in many Mm -hmm. ways it was harder to grocery shop in New York than in some Mm -hmm. of these small towns. And were there like ingredients that like you were new to you or like or something that was prominent on the shelves that surprised you? I think more it was like things that I thought were hard to get were actually mm-hmm. maybe not hard to get. Like things like lemongrass, like huh. Safely has lemongrass, you know? And like my bodega definitely didn't have lemongrass, stuff like that. Yeah. So what was, now when you did the, I'm just fascinated by this trip. So I guess this is more about road trips than <laughs> spring cooking. <laughs> but what was, what were some of the best things you ate on this road trip? Like, oh my gosh, that's a really hard question. Um, they eat. I mean, were you cooking most of the time? And were you We were your- cooking. So I was still working. In the car, like you're no, no. <laughs> So we would stop at Airbnb. So I had a full kitchen because I didn't have an oven or anything in the van. And I do a lot of cross testing. So like testing other people's recipes to make sure they work. So I still needed like a full kitchen for that. So we'd drive, stop for a couple weeks at an Airbnb, kind of like be locals as much as we could and experience the place and then keep going. This is like a new lifestyle because um, <laughs> my husband has a cousin who is like a nomad with his partner. Like they literally, they're in Puerto Rico right now. They've went to Portland. They are, I guess that's like if you're young, see, I'm old now. So this isn't, I <laughs> like to be rooted. Yeah. <laughs> but there's something about like being rooted in, in a place. Like I think I would just go crazy um, not, not having like my, my space, but on the flip side, you get to see so many new places and experience new things. So I really admire that. So let's, let's rewind the clock a little and go back to, um, your childhood in Los Angeles and, and the inklings that you may have had, or maybe didn't have about being, becoming a food writer and how this all happened. Yeah. I mean, I think I grew up with a mom who was always cooking and the grandma who was always cooking. So food was definitely like part of my life every day. And when I was little, I would bake a lot um, just because I felt like I could like follow the recipe and it would come out. Um, I would sell my baked goods at school. Um, And then it wasn't until I went to college and got an internship at 10 Speed Press that I was like, oh, like food could be a job. Um, So I, in high school, I worked at a bookstore and I was like, I want to make books. So I was connected with um, this internship at 10 Speed and they obviously make a lot of cookbooks. So I was like, oh, like this, this could be a thing that could really be fun for me. 
So after college, I got a full-time job there and started editing books. Mm-hmm. And I saw on your website that you edited the Food 52 book. And what, what, what were some of the other books that you worked on? I worked on that one. I worked on some Peter Reinhardt baking books. Mm-hmm. I had acquired like a book about um, collecting records and a book by an illustrator about um, like amazing animal facts, all sorts of things. It's funny because I've worked on a few cookbooks and I've experienced a, a different different kinds of editors each time. You know, I mean, the one that I'm working on right now with my friend Gideon is a Broadway cookbook with all these Broadway <laughs> puns. And it's at Countryman Press and our editor, Anne, is very like kind of relaxed and just sort of like, oh, this is funny. This might be confusing for people. This And then I did a book at Artisan Books and my editor there, Judy Prey, was very intensive in a wonderful way. Like she was scrutinized the text and really circle things and and I remember <laughs> I had like something in one of the pages where I was like, you can figure this out on your own. And she circled and I wrote, no, <laughs> like exclamation point. And so I'm curious when you were an editor, like, did it take you a while to find your footing in terms of how much feedback you wanted to give and what kind of feedback did you give? Yeah, that's a good question. I think sometimes people don't realize there's a lot of different kinds of editors. So for a cookbook editor, you know, some people might really be focused on like, the big picture, like the general big idea, like what's saleable. Some editors really want to be like in the weeds with the recipes and the words and stuff like that. And then your book also goes through many rounds of passes with various kinds of editors. So you'll have a developmental edit, which is like really like organizational construct, like structure. And then you'll have a copy edit, which is like grammar and consistency and then you have a proofreader. So, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of editing. I was only there for a couple of years, so I can't say like I was like had established my style, but I think I really it was important to me to like preserve my author's intention and like make their idea into book form instead of like me impressing upon their idea. Mm-hmm. And when you worked on your own book, like is this your first cookbook? That's mm-hmm. come out? Wow. Congratulations. That's so cool. Thank you. When you were approaching this, were you thinking like an editor? Like, were you thinking, you know, if if this were somebody else's book, I would tell them X, Y, Z? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think I, I knew enough about, like, the what would happen in the future to know, like, when I send in the manuscript, it has to be, like, as close to what I want it to be as possible, just so yeah. everyone who touches the book has a good sense of, like, what we're after here. But I think more so... It was really important to me to find an editor who like really understood the vision and was the kind of editor that I wanted to work with. And my editor, Jen Sit, is truly like, I wrote this book for her. Like she was the one who was like, I need this book. And so she was kind of like my guiding force for sure. And how did you pitch it? Because the book is called I Dream of Dinner. But what was the pitch that she said that made her say, I need this book? I think the pitch was like, well, I was really inspired by Eat um, from Nigel Slater. Uh-huh. which I also, um, I was the American editor on oh, cool. when I was at 10 Speed. And I I just wanted like quick dinners that weren't lame, you know? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> that, that makes sense, quick dinners that aren't lame. <laughs> no, I, lo- I love that because it's like, you know, everyone wants easy food, but, n- but people are also like trained to, with Instagram and everything, they want everything to look beautiful and be special. So I think that's really smart. Yeah, it's kind of a hard, it was like a delicate balance because it's like you don't want it to feel like every other weeknight dinner book, but you also don't want it to feel too precious. So it was a constant balance for sure. Well, it makes me think a little bit about the idea of simplicity in like art and in even decor or like minimalism that, you know, there's a real craft to doing something simple. It's actually sometimes harder because you see all the you know, all the stitch work or whatever that you can really look at. I mean, I'm looking at one of your, I, the recipe that I'm going to make first is called harissa chickpeas with feta. And it's like deceptively simple because it's basically like you heat the oven, you saute garlic in a pan, then you add tomato paste, harissa, cumin, 
And then you add two cans of chickpeas, capers, which that, that was the surprise ingredient <laughs> for me. I was like, capers with harissa, I liked it. And then the coolest part is you sprinkle it with feta and then bake it and possibly even broil it to get the cheese crispy on top. So to me, that's like a perfect like embodiment of the, what you're talking about because it's like there are very few ingredients. They're all very readily available, but that's, a, to me, um, a brilliant way to combine them and it will be healthy but flavorful and decadent so can you talk about like for example that recipe like do you remember your starting point i can't remember exactly but my guess is it was probably saganaki and saganaki paired with my like cheesy white bean bake that is extremely popular from new york times cooking and what is saganaki i see it in the notes but can you tell us what culture it comes from and what it is um it's greek and it's like shrimp tomato broiled feta you can also just kind of get like broiled feta on its own. I, I don't know if you've ever been to Papa Cristo's on yes. Pico, I think. I went there once by myself and I, I, <laughs> I did because Jonathan Gold wrote about it and it was on his, in his book, but I didn't quite know how to tackle the menu. I don't think I ordered well. <laughs> I would really suggest going back. I went there a lot as a kid and we would get the broiled feta, which had like cherry tomatoes alongside. So I think that mix of like charred flavors with fresh tomato. And hot molten feta kind of was like ingrained in my head. And then I wanted to do a, like a cheese topped bean thing because the ones that I've done for the times um, people really love and appreciate. Mm-hmm. So chickpeas, I had the chickpea one. And then the capers, who knows? I mean, maybe <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was like a puntanesca uh-huh. riff. I don't know. I don't know where that came from. And when you test these recipes, because it sounds like testing is really something that you take seriously because obviously you're doing it for other people. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about your process? Yeah, it depends on how, like how firm of an idea I have when I'm starting out, but I definitely make things multiple times. And kind of the first run is like the idea generally, like I try not to worry too much about measurements. I just like work through, feel it in my body. So you want, if you want to say that, <laughs> and then I tweak from there with measurements and I'm always trying to like see if I could do something more efficiently or if I could use one fewer ingredient, stuff like that. And then all the recipes also were cross-tested by someone else because Mm -hmm. it was important to me that like someone was shopping somewhere else and using a different stove and different pots and pans to make sure it was replicable. And when you make this food to test it, are you feeding it to your boyfriend? Are you feeding it to people in your life and asking them what they think of it to you? Yeah, that was a hard part of the pandemic is it was just like harder to share food. So my boyfriend tried everything and he is not a super discerning taste tester. He like <laughs> likes it or doesn't like it, right, <laughs> which, right. which is like as much as I can get, which is help. Um, and then we'd kind of like eat through leftovers for days and days on end. So if I like still liked it by day three or four, like it was worth you know, putting in the book. And I noticed your book, I mean, I'm going to scan through it just to make sure what I'm saying makes sense, but it seems like your your food is pretty much like on the lighter side. Like it's, like I don't see like deep fried, you know, Twinkies, <laughs> and, <laughs> um, like double cheeseburgers with, you know, bacon, like, and, and there's something about that, that again, like feels very of the moment, but is that how you've always eaten? And is that, or is that something that's sort of new to you too? I mean, I think I definitely ate lighter when I lived in California. And then once cold weather in New York happened and I was walking a lot more, I was like, well, I have to eat like, you know, more substantial meals. I, I'm happy you say that you feel like there's lighter food. I think there's a good mix. Mm-hmm. I was honestly a little self-conscious about how much butter there is. Just oh, because really? I think like That's so during funny. the pandemic, I was like, add butter, like makes everything better. Oh, here's fresh corn polenta with lime butter. So yeah, I see some butter, but yeah. that looks delicious. There's like a farro carbonara, um, some baked pastas. There's no like deep frying just because I can't imagine doing that like on a Thursday night. But my hope is that there's like something for every craving and mood. Well, there's, I mean, every picture has vegetables. Every <laughs> picture has yeah, like some kind of, Yeah, that's a good point. You know, uh, herbs, like everything looks bright. So, I mean, I don't think I asked you this specifically, but how did you learn how to cook? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think going to college and having to like feed myself was right. the first moment when I was like, this is how I, this is, this is when I'm 
cooking now, you know, I guess I'm doing this thing. In the introduction, you talk about your uh, mother and your Nona, and you include this hilarious picture of her biscotti recipe where it's <laughs> illegible and it's like covered in notes and designs. So can you talk a little, little bit about her and her influence on you? Yeah, she she's a firecracker. She came to America from Italy when she was 20 and, you know, similarly, like had to figure out how to feed a new husband and soon to be newborns. And I think she just like fell back on all of the foods she ate growing up, growing up in Tuscany. And um, so she is a very prolific cook, always cooking, feeding everyone, like feeds the gardener and the, you know, mailman, like just always feeding people. <laughs> I love um, that. That's a fantasy yeah. of mine to have an Italian grandmother who feeds everybody. That sounds like you were spoiled. I mean, I think her neighbors are like, okay, enough lady with the cookies. <laughs> but like, <laughs> She did at one point live, she was in Los Feliz, and she lived next to an actor who, like, had a gate, you know, was, like, very much like, I'm a private person. And she would, like, put cookies on this doorstep. And she'd be like, why is he not taking the cookies? And I was like, well. Wait, can we rewind story. for a second? Yeah. She lives in Los Feliz, you said? Yeah. I live off of Los Feliz Boulevard. So um, I live in Atwater Village, which is literally, like, five minutes away from Atwater. Yeah, you're probably in walking. Yeah, she lives right, right by the um, Greek theater. So she needs people to eat her food. And <laughs> I eat food. So I feel like there's a connection that can be made as, a, as an act of charity to help her. So the, so the actor neighbor doesn't hurt her feelings. Uh, well, I think that the answer to the question, how did you learn to cook? It seems like having a grandmother from Tuscany is pretty much like the ace up your sleeve. I mean, just having that in your DNA seems pretty wonderful. Right. I can't say I know like why it why I like inherited it, like how it transferred from her to my mom to me. But it definitely like just watching people cook all the yeah. time. I think you learn stuff, you know. And have you cooked for her? Yeah. For Christmas, we all kind of like cook together. But I mean, like your food, I mean, like the oh. stuff in your book, like has she tasted that your chickpeas with harissa? No, no. Why? <laughs> no. She should be so proud of you. I can't see. I know why. I don't know. We, we bake together a lot. Usually when I'm in L.A., I think I'm just like, I'll just get Sanku chicken, you know, <laughs> I'm going to take a day off. <laughs> so you grew up in L.A. So how did your family wind up in New York? So I just came to New York for work and then my mom followed me because oh. she can't leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> That's so cute. So she just followed yes. you to New York. And so what, what was the job you got after being an editor at 10 Speed? So when I worked on Junius Recipes, I met Kristen McGlory, who's the author of that book and the executive editor um, of Food 52. And they were doing a big round of hiring. And so I applied. I think I just like wanted to be in New York and felt like I would learn a lot. Um, and especially at Food 52 at that time, which was like a startup. And I remember. Like a... I mean, I remember <laughs> I, Amanda, speaking of asparagus, Amanda and Meryl like, were making asparagus in a video and they invited me to come on. And so like, I'm in like early, early Food 52. If you look at the videos, there's one of me making like asparagus dishes with them. But what's so funny is at the time... I was a huge, and I still am a huge Amanda Hesser fan. Like I loved her book, Cooking for Mr. Latte, and I loved her columns. And I remember thinking, like, what is she doing? This is such a terrible idea. Like she's <laughs> give, she's giving up her writing career to do this, and now that website is worth what, like three hundred million dollars? No, she knew. She, I think she knew from that, you know, like from those early days, like this is what it was going to be. Don't you think? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I had lunch with Ed Levine and he was saying that her the brilliant stroke that she made was mixing the like content with commerce that like that she very naturally was able to sell things that didn't feel like obnoxious. It's just like these are the things that we use. And also like here's a great recipe. So it's pretty smart. Yeah. She talks a lot about like building trust and how like if you build trust with your readers you know, they'll trust like the pan you like or the mm -hmm. shirt you're wearing or whatever, you know. That's really smart. So you worked for Food 52. And then what was the next move? And then I um, decided to work for myself. Great. I think I just, I learned so much at Food 52 and I worked so hard and I was so tired and I yes. just like needed a break. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. And so, so you when, you, when 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 I do your recipes from the New York Times, these are recipes that you're pitching them. Like you're you're doing the old fashioned, like freelancer. Like here's a pitch because as I've mentioned on this podcast before, I have pitched Emily Weinstein so many times that she now ignores my emails. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, 
I truly can't imagine how many emails she gets. Yeah, you know? I'm not trying to insult anyone. <laughs> I should just have her on and ask her like what the deal is. But how, when you pitch a recipe to a publication like the Times, how do you think about it? I mean, are you thinking like what's seasonal? Like what? And also like, how do you pitch something that feels different enough to merit being published? Gosh, that's a really good question. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's um, a constant thing I think about. I think I... I think something that was important to me in this book and is why people like my recipes on the times is they don't feel overly developed. And that's really hard when you're pitching because like you want your ideas to stand out. So you're like adding the razzle dazzle, but for real life, like, do you really need the nut garnish or the sprinkle (laughs) or, you know, the side thing? Like what, what is like really useful for someone's every day? And I think when I started working with the Times, they were very adamant, like, please just pitch us like what you would cook. Um, and that you was never like tell a helpful. Me that. <laughs> I, I had no idea. I was pitching them like cassoulet and stuff. Wow. <laughs> Who knew? But OK, for example, like your sheet pan bake with sausages and peppers and cherry tomatoes, which is absolutely delicious. And I've made that. Um, like, what was the spin there? Like, what like what made that like get through, do you think? And I'm not saying this because I'm embittered. I'm just saying this because <laughs> I want to know. <laughs> I mean, I often don't really know why things get passed, but that one. So the first round of pitching I had ever done for them, they were like, we want butternut squash in 45 minutes. So sometimes they do get like really focused prompts. And so I had done a sheet pan like sausage and squash dish that was, Mm -hmm. I think it's really just squash, sausage and parsley maybe. Mm -hmm. And they really loved that one. So I was like, okay, what else can we do? Like, how can we tweak these things for whatever season I was pitching? So I was like, you just swap this squash for other vegetables. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a new dish. You make it sound so easy. (laughs) It's all all the Italian grandmother in you. That's the secret. I know. It's just like, what? I mean, it's like, how do you explain your brain? Who knows? You know? Yeah. So when you're not testing recipes and you're not working, what kind of stuff do you make for yourself? You know, it's really a limited time that I have to like cook for fun anymore. Uh huh. Or where do you eat? Yeah. So out here, there's nowhere to eat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, today, actually, today I was like, I'm going to make food for us because I don't have a lot of cross testing to do today. So I made, you know, like very simple food. Like I made some beans and a cabbage salad that we'll have for dinner. Like just things that I know will be good and I can eat for many days and won't get sick of. I just accidentally turned this podcast back into my old podcast where I asked what you had for lunch. So, wow, <laughs> okay, I, I, was, <laughs> I was laughing because I was like, if he's going to ask me what I had for lunch, I'm going to be so embarrassed. Oh my gosh. Well, no, I didn't mean to. And, and if you're listening to this and you're a fan of the old podcast, don't enjoy it too much because I'm not going to ever ask that again. <laughs> um, well, I want to bring this back to spring cooking because I think we kind of glossed over it. That is our theme today. So I'm going to name an ingredient. Mm. a spring ingredient and I would love to hear without any pressure how you would prepare it are you ready yeah okay um sugar snap peas Mm. I really like to thinly slice them kind of on the diagonal and put them in a salad with some arugula and maybe like a ponzu kind of dressing Mm. maybe some fish how do you make a ponzu dressing so i like to do soy sauce rice vinegar vinegar, i can't remember and like a mix of citrus so lemon lime orange whatever you have grapefruit so you don't actually have to have a ponzu to make a ponzu dressing i didn't know that see that's so funny because like i immediately was like i can't make that i don't have ponzu um okay what would you do with fresh strawberries i mean just eat them eat them (laughs) straight okay you have have company coming over and you have to make something (laughs) I'd like, I really like to roast them, slow roast them um, with okay. a little sugar. So they're kind of like, they're still intact, but there's kind of like some syrup that you can put on ice cream. Mm. And do you do anything like to them besides add sugar? Like, do you, do you add like, um, like what else would you add? Like balsamic vinegar or something? Well, I mean, you could add like cardamom or rhubarb, or mm-hmm. if you had an herb, like some thyme or bay leaf would be really nice. Mm-hmm. How about green garlic? I've never cooked with green garlic. 
Oh, it's beautiful. I mean, actually, I think it's funny. I think it's like the mythology of of green garlic more than the green garlic itself because I just cooked with it yesterday. And the truth is I was making a saute of um, green garlic, asparagus, and sugar snap peas. And so I started it much like your recipes with the garlic and the oil in the pan and sauteed that until it was golden. And then I added the sugar snap peas and the um, asparagus and it was delicious. Like I loved it. But I don't think it was the best use of the green garlic because then it just got disappeared. But... There was a recipe, I think in one of the Chez Panisse books, where you bake, like, it's sort of like roasted garlic, but you bake the, like, bulb of green garlic, and then you really, it does have, like, a vegetal, springy taste to it. You're nodding your head, but you're like, I just want Fritos. Well, not, no. <laughs> Is it, like, the, like, stickier garlic? No. No. It's, it's almost like. It's like a, it looks like baby garlic cloves. Like they're just like, it's like a big stock. She's Googling. So I think Googling she's, it. she's not, she's not going off what I'm saying. This is why Emily Weinstein doesn't trust I'm me because I'm not an, I'm not an authority figure. I believe you. I'm just trying to think what I'm thinking of. I don't know. I know. How about artichokes? I mean, I just love to boil them and then eat them with mayonnaise or maybe a little lemon. Again, you're making this sound so easy, but <laughs> I've struggled with artichokes my entire life. Like I have never, ever dealt with an artichoke in a way that I'm happy with. So let's let's go back a couple of steps. So you're at the store or the farmer's market and you see an artichoke. Are you looking for a big artichoke? Are you looking for a small artichoke? Are you looking for a baby artichoke? You know, I think, again, you're maybe you're overthinking it. <laughs> I mean, I this think... This artich- my therapy session. It's not <laughs> even a therapy podcast anymore. Okay. The artichokes I grew up eating were the ones from Trader Joe's, which are okay. like fairly large. If you get them at the farmer's market, they're probably even more delicious. And my mom would make them all the time. She would just like peel the stem, mm-hmm. lop off the top. Okay, I see. Okay, so expose the leaves so you can pull them off. Yeah, exactly. And then and like cut off any of the um, thorns. I don't know what they're called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then she puts them in water with lemon, maybe some like bay leaves, thyme, like, you know, stock kind of ingredients. Mm-hmm. And then just simmers them for a long time. And so you take it out and then you just take, do you store-bought mayonnaise or do you make your own mayonnaise? <laughs> I definitely use store-bought mayonnaise. <laughs> wow, you're With a little lemon juice. I'm sending, I'm sending yeah, this whole podcast into the New York Times. I was going to say, this is extremely you. embarrassing. <laughs> no, I don't think it is at all. I think it's the secret of your success because I actually think a boiled fresh artichoke with store-bought mayonnaise is a Ali Slagle, like you know, experience like that makes, that's like all the recipes in your book. It's like a little bit, it's like high meets low. I'm not, I'm just saying low in quotes, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I think if there's nothing wrong with like making aioli by hand is extremely delicious, but realistically, like I'm just not going to do it. You know what my husband's father does when he makes crab cakes is he mixes um, store-bought mayonnaise with grated garlic and lemon juice. And that's really delicious. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's like a different thing, you know? It's a different mm-hmm. moment in time, different flavor, and totally works when you want, like, artichoke quickly with the dip. I'm trying to, like, go through my head of, like, other spring ingredients. What about, like, new potatoes? So, new potatoes, I really like to boil them and then kind of shake them so they get starchy on the outside. And then let them sit with olive oil and, you know, whatever aromatics garlic rosemary and then i like to grill them because somebody just went home from top chef for grilling potatoes (laughs) did you watch that i did watch that his grilled potatoes they seemed raw i don't know if he if he boiled them first you really have to cook them through first well yeah because he left the boiled potatoes behind and then he was serving it but i didn't understand and i said this in last week's podcast is why didn't he drop the grilled potatoes into his sauce to finish cooking in there and then it would have been cooked through it seems like a very basic thing like also like the, he's like uh, he was like the chef de cuisine at momofuku ko so i don't understand like why he would serve raw potato to the judges yeah i think he just like to me he just got like really hyped on the idea of grilling and then kind of forgot about like the flavor or the and dish like, in general and you're on a show like that you get it's and, overwhelming yeah, yeah. <laughs> have you ever been on a show like that no, I'm trying to think. Oh, it's funny. Ted Allen used to have a show called Food Detectives. 
And I was working at the Food Network at the time. And the idea was like they would get to the bottom of like some issue and like some food question. And they wanted me to, <laughs> to wear fart pants for like, like a week where like it measured the amount of gas that you produce if you ate beans. And I was like, I am not doing that. No <laughs> way. Like I, you can fire me. I am not doing that. So what I ended up doing on food TV was I was part of an experiment where people ate raw garlic every day for like three days and I was the control group so I didn't have to do anything and then some people smelled us like smelled our skin to see if like if the garlic like goes through your skin that is something my grandma believes in she eats a raw garlic clove every day really and she's turning 96 the day that my book comes out that's so cute so tell us a little bit we're about to wrap up this part of the podcast um tell us a little bit about the plans for the book are you going on a book tour are you gonna do any events I don't really have any events planned, mostly just press. And I am going on Good Morning America, which wow. I'm very nervous about. <laughs> this, is, this is good practice. If you can survive my my grilling you about um, artichokes, you can do anything. Yeah, it's just like a new skill set, you know, that yeah. I do not have yet. So I had to go on a show. It was like like the low low rent version of like good morning america it was like literally like eight people watch it i don't know what it was but my last publisher sent me on there to make lentil soup and it it was like the hosts hated each other and then (laughs) and i was much like you i was like so nervous about how am i gonna do this how am i gonna like saute the onions in time and and it went by so fast it's like and i I realized like they don't care like no because all they'll do is just like chit chat you just explain a few things and then they come out with the finished product. You, you have it already ready to go. Right. It's, yeah, it's more just the whole show of it, you know? Yeah. So you're not somebody who likes to be in the limelight necessarily. No, definitely not. <laughs> well, you've done very well. I mean, do you feel good about our talk? <laughs> yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much for making yeah. it such a breeze. Well, we're going to hang on and do a bonus episode in two seconds. But just so everyone knows who's listening to the free episode, get out there and buy Ali Slagle's new book, I Dream of Dinner, available. When does it get published? April 12th. April 12th. All right. Thanks, Ali. Thank you, Evan. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Amateur Gourmet Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please leave some nice reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to hear my bonus episode with Ali Slagle tomorrow, become a paid subscriber. Do that at my Substack, which is amateurgourmet.substack.com. And you'll also get access to all kinds of stuff. Like I just wrote a huge essay about the year that I worked at the Food Network and I spilled a lot of secrets. So if you want to read that, head over to my Substack and become a paid subscriber. All right. Well, I'll see you back here next week. Have a good one. Oh,